0: Preach seriously if you didn't have it. I just would have stayed down. It's <laughs> great, thanks, bro. All right. Well good morning, everybody. I feel really loud. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Catherine, can I move these two? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna scoot them here. I will probably boot them into the first row at some point. Um, well, hey, it's great to see you all this morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church again, and if you're visiting, we're uh, we're glad you're here. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and um, and uh, isn't it great we're all here? By the way, too, it's kind of fun to all be in the same room for the first time in a while um, since we've been at two services since last September, and it's kind of fun to have this summer mode. I, it's the first time I've been here since I've been gone for two weeks, and good to be back. My wife and I and fam were in uh, South Carolina by Charleston an island called Kiowa Island, if you guys have heard of that place before. It's kind of 45 minutes east of, of uh, Charleston, and it's a gated community kind of thing. We felt really out of place. It was weird. <laughs> it was so weird. I've gone to some, you know, not too many, but sometimes when you go to the beach, there's some fancier beach homes, stuff like that, but this place was, just felt like different culture. It was crazy. My wife and I look at each other a lot and say, we just do not belong, but it's fun to be here for a week. Uh, but anyway, okay. But great to be back. We're going to dive right into a lot to talk about in Matthew 8. Um, That's uh, just a great passage of scripture. We're going to dive right into a new sub-series, actually. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount now for a while, chapters 5 to 7. Peter finished up preaching on that a couple weeks ago. And uh, so if you're brand new today, uh, this this is where we are preaching-wise. We value preaching here at Hiawatha, and we like preaching through books of the Bible pretty much A to Z we call that expositional preaching, just taking a verse at a time or a section at a time going right through and talking about what God's saying to us in it, what we can learn about Jesus in it, and what we can learn about ourselves in it too, what salvation is, and all kinds of things about the Bible and, and, uh, and doctrine. So we're in Matthew right now, we've we'll been in it for a while, it's uh, the longest of the four Gospels. Matthew is the first of the uh, New Testament books, it tells a story of uh, one account of the four of Jesus' uh, early ministry, his birth first and early ministry years. Then his uh, Sermon on the Mount and more of his ministry, talk about the cross and the passion, which is a Latin word for suffering, or derived from Latin word for suffering, passion of the Christ, the sufferings of the Christ. So a lot of the book is given over to that. Uh, But before we get there, we're going to be in this bigger middle section. So today begins a new sub-series of the greater series of Matthew because it's just helpful with longer series to break these things down. So um, that's what we're doing. The new sub-series is going to be called uh, the Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom declaring and demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom. And remember that Jesus has already been doing both of these. Uh, if you're newer to the Bible, this is really how we read the whole of the scriptures. Everything is about the cross, and when Christ talks about the gospel of the kingdom, gospel means good news. He's talking about the kingdom of God and how God is coming into the world to redeem it from its sinful state. And that's the, the bit, that's the nutshell Anyways, a lot to that. Uh, he's been talking about that already, but all the scripture is really about that. Jesus is God has been at work since Adam and Eve fell into sin and all of creation has been corrupted by sin. God has been staying committed to his creation, and he's been at work uh, redeeming it from its fallen state. And and Christ is that ultimate manifestation of help and rescue. And so these early parts of the Gospels, Jesus has been talking about the cross. That's really where he's going to help us. He's going to go to the cross and die in our place. But in his early parts, he's building the story towards that. So whether he's teaching or speaking in parables or healing people or delivering demonized, or just really talking about the cross explicitly, which you will, uh, all those things build up to that ultimate ultimate event. So this middle section of Matthew, this is actually going to take us from chapter 8 to 20, 25, the beginning of 26. So it's a huge section of Matthew, and it's just one way to describe what's going on here. Jesus is, in one sense, talking about the kingdom of God very explicitly and talking about the cross and what he's going to do there. In other ways, he's demonstrating it physically, like we're going to see today. He's healing people, and He's talking in parables. He's teaching about what the kingdom of God is like. A lot of his parables start that way. The kingdom of God is like this. And then he'll talk about it in a physical manner, just to teach about some of the meat and and potatoes of it, like what really makes it up. So we'll get there too. But really both are going on. So declaring and and demonstrating. So today what we're going to do is, again, in context here, he's just finished a long sermon on a hillside. He comes down from the mount and he heals three people today talks about faith and God's kingdom and healing uh, in lots of ways, ways that teach us more about Jesus and why he came and how a person's cleansed from sin. And like any good story, there's tons of drama and irony and resolution uh, in just this little subsection of, uh, of Matthew 8 two, which, which we'll see. So it's a great little section here, but three healings. And I think it's important to take all three in one one sitting because there's a lot of repeated themes here uh, going going on. So but so today's passage is Matthew 8, 1 to 17. Go ahead and open your Bibles if you want, or just follow along on screen or on your uh, sermon inserts. But the type's about 0. .7, so good luck with that, or 7-point font. But, um, but you can follow along, have good eyesight with that too. Matthew 8, uh, 1 to 17, today is uh, He bore our diseases. To quote from Isaiah 53, and Matthew quotes from that too, uh, here a little bit later as we'll see. So let's read it all to begin. Actually, I just want to read the first verse to begin, then we'll read the rest, something I want to note here in, uh, in verse 1. So he begins. Matthew begins with just a simple comment. He says, "When Jesus came down from the mountain, uh, great crowds followed him." So remember, he's just been teaching now about the kingdom of God, and he's been bringing the word of God to his disciples, talking about sin, the seriousness of sin, and how he's the remedy, and how blessed the poor in spirit are. That's how he began the whole sermon. Blessed, happy, uh, met by God are the ones who are seeing themselves as spiritually bankrupt. So that's how he begins the whole thing, the Beatitude section in the first few verses, and then it kind of spills into a lot of what he says, actually, in all three, all three chapters. But he has been bringing and teaching about the kingdom, bringing the word of God to his disciples here on, on a mountain. And one thing I want you to see here in that first clause, when he came down from the mountain, and we do this a lot here at Hiawatha, the Bible does this. One helpful way to read your Bibles is to always ask, especially with narratives sometimes like this, is to ask, where else have we seen things like this happen? So whether it's an event, or maybe a festival, or a teaching theme, we can ask, where else have we seen this type of person do something that resembles this? Or if you're in the New Testament like we are, where else in the Old Testament have we seen something like this happen? Or if you're in the Old Testament, where does Jesus complete this idea? How does he fulfill it? The Bible reads itself like this tirelessly. It's a great way to understand and get at meaning, because you always have to ask that, right? What does this passage mean? Today's a great example of this. Because nowhere in Matthew 8 does it say very clearly, and this is what this means. And this is how this applies very clearly to a 21st century Christian in America. So it never says that really neatly and plainly. So we have to do this hard work of interpreting what the Word of God means. And the best way to do that is to read the Bible how the Bible reads itself. And when we do that, we see that the Bible is always at pains to show how there's patterns set up. God is a repetitive God in a good way. He teaches things thematically that begin in a shadowy way in the Old Testament, but find their clarity in Christ, in in the New. And so now we're kind of reading backwards, though, because we're in the New Testament, right? And so if we do that here, and we just simply ask the question, where else do we see a man, a man of God, come down from a mountain in the Bible, as it pertains to having the Word of God? And when we ask that question, uh, and there's probably more than two, but two main ones, and the Bible makes a strong correlation between Jesus and this man Uh, all over the Scriptures, all over the New Testament, and that is Moses, right? Moses the prophet back in the Old Testament came down from Mount Sinai after Israel escaped from Egypt and God ransomed them from Egypt. He went up to a mountain, received the Ten Commandments, and descended from that mountain. Just like Jesus here is doing something very, very similar. And again, Bible's at pains to make a correlation between these two guys. Actually, Matthew's already done that, right? If you've been here since the beginning of the series, you've seen how we've seen Jesus resemble things that... uh, that Moses did before him, but actually complete them and surpass him on a number of other levels uh, as, as well. So, so two guys, a correlation here between Jesus bringing the word of God to his disciples and descending from this mountain, and Moses bringing the Ten Commandments down from Sinai to God's people uh, in, in Israel. But the big difference here, and it's important to see relationships like this, but also a strong uh, difference as well. The big difference is what happens when these two people come down from mountains, don't you guys remember in the Old Testament, in Exodus 32, where Moses goes up on a, on, a, on a mountain and receives these stipulations of a covenant, or these uh, stipulations of a relationship now between God and people and their laws? They're things that people are to do and to not do, and to keep to maintain, uh, in a sense, God's blessing upon them. And, and this, they're about to enter the Promised Land and this uh, remaining in the Promised Land. So blessings and curses. Uh, when Moses comes down from the mountain. Uh, people are engaged in all kinds of idolatrous things, right? They're worshiping a golden calf. They had fashioned one from the gold and silver that they had in the camp. They're, they're committing idolatry, and God knows this, and he's angry about it. He sends Moses down and says, this is happening. And through God's anger, he sends a plague, people die. Judgment, right? But not with Christ. What happens here with Jesus when he descends from the mountain is three people, outcasts of society, are healed perfectly. It's, it's just a total 180, right? Right? He comes down to the mount and he's been teaching about the word of God like Moses, but differently as well. So I have these things here, uh, the first part in italics there. In association with the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, we have idolatry and the golden calf fiasco, the plague and judgment. In Matthew 8, in association with teaching about the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and being poor in spirit. In association with teaching about God doing everything and us doing nothing to save. We have healing and forgiveness and washing, which we're going to see here today, to the uttermost. That's something we need to note when we read about these healings is their leprosy and their fever and their paralysis are completely gone. Not just a little bit, but completely gone, uh, as is the case for, for our sin. We'll make some of those connections here uh, a little bit later as well. So, so really kind of cool thing here to begin, right? Just this is a, This is not the main point here, but it's in the background. If we if we know the story of Moses being on a mountain and coming down from a mountain, like Jesus is coming down from a mountain right here, what we really have is a, is a representative of two different testaments or covenants. One is it pertains to a law, which could never be kept, and which brought judgment upon people. When it was up to them to save, up to them to, to maintain blessing in a sense, and, and to do things for the sake of their own righteousness. On the one hand, that brought plague and judgment and death, lots of terrible things. If you read the Old Testament from cover to cover, you see that repeatedly happen. In the New Testament, though, it was a flip. In connection with Jesus teaching about himself and him doing everything, saving to the uttermost, alone, this is anticipating the cross, we have the opposite. Life, resurrection, and and blessing. A couple of passages to remind me of. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, it says, the law kills, the letter kills us, but the Spirit of God gives life. The law kills but the Spirit of God gives life. And then just with Jesus and Moses, uh, directly as well from John 1, 17, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So so similarities here, right, on the one hand, uh, but also lots of differences. Jesus, it, Moses is setting the stage for Jesus by being a prophet and by being one who is connected with, the, with teachings of God and the, and the law of God and the, and the scriptures, the word of God and this whole mountain idea. But in another sense, Jesus surpasses him and does something, something very different. So that's really going to set the stage here for, I think, we already talked about this in a lot of ways, but set the stage for a lot of what the rest of Matthew says and a lot of what the rest of the Bible says. Jesus is here to do a new thing, the prophets of the Old Testament said. A different thing. A related thing, but yet a different thing at the same time. And the difference is, God's going to do it all. Salvation belongs to the Lord, the Scripture says. Not to us. It's not something we own not something we manufacture, it's something God owns, and it's his alone to distribute, his alone to give, his alone to make possible in the world. That's what he does for us through his son on on the cross. So, all right, so a little bit of a sidebar, but I think that's a helpful thing to note for the sake of our understanding of the scriptures, how they hang together, and also how it sets the stage for this new uh, grace-filled work, powerful work, Jesus accomplishes for us here in a beginning kind of way in Matthew 8, but ultimately on the cross. So, All right, let's keep reading. I'm going to read the whole rest of it now. So verses 2 to 17, and uh, we'll come back and unpack some key themes here, repeated themes that come up throughout the rest of the passage. All right, verse 2 says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. All right, well, one big observation I I wanted to make right off the bat, and this is just an overarching one. It's not where I'm going to spend most of my time, but I think it's one that probably a lot of you are thinking about. I know I do when I read passages like this. Uh, But it has to do with the physical dimension of this. But the, the general observation is, isn't it just amazing that this actually happened? Isn't it incredible? This is history. It's amazing that this guy lived. He walked into homes, he touched people on their shoulder and their hands, and skin diseases and fevers and paralysis just left people. Which is incredible for all of us who suffer, right? And all of us will. But really, I think what's in focus here on face value after an initial reading, anyway, of the passage is just Jesus' power, his authority, right? Because sickness is stronger than us. Our bodies have at times, hopefully for many years, strong immune systems by God's grace, but eventually they break down and they can't fight them off. Death always wins. No one doesn't die. So sicknesses are chronic many times and they're stronger than us, but here read about a passage where Jesus, there's a man who lived who was stronger than them, that diseases had to listen to him. It's incredible power and authority. This is why people, after Jesus does some things and and teaches some things, I think it's more clear in the Gospel of Mark, but where he just people just stop and say, we've never seen this before. He has authority that no one has ever exhibited in our history. We've never heard of it. The prophets, to a degree, a little bit, but Jesus is doing this at a much more comprehensive and higher level. Power, authority, hope, right? He's doing this, keep in mind, around people who are suffering. Whether they were healed or not, they're maybe dying, and they're, they're some of the last things they hear Jesus' teachings, or some of the last things they see are some of these things. Hope. Hope, that the death does not have the last word maybe anymore. Sickness doesn't. Chronic illness and things, things like that. So, so one question we can ask after a, an, an initial reading of a passage like this, then I think is, does this stuff really happen? What are we supposed to do with this? Jesus is alive, right? He rose again. He has sent, he's ascended to the heavens. But he sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to be among us now. Uh, are these things, can we expect these things to happen? And is Jesus still working in the same kind of way? In, in the world now. And I think two things can be said to that. I think, first of all, if you just look at this passage and passages like it, nothing here indicates that the age of miracles is over, right? Especially here. But if you know about the rest of the gospel and, and the book of Acts and so forth and the rest of the New Testament, nothing indicates that this is just for a time. I think Jesus is doing something pretty special here, but at the same time, nothing's clearly indicating that the age of miracles has has ceased or is going to cease maybe right after this or something or after the Holy Spirit comes and empowers the church for word-based ministry, things like that. Nothing here indicates, indicates that. So, so pray for miracles. We do that a lot here at the church. Pray for the explicitly miraculous, the obviously miraculous, and the not so obviously miraculous. Like when God uses medicine to heal or uses our immune systems to heal or a healthy diet to heal. God is at the core of both of those things. So healing happens quite often, and, and not, we shouldn't make everything a miracle or nothing is. We have to distinguish between the that just never happens or rarely happens, and the things that happen more regularly. Of course, but still, God is the author of all, and so I think that one response to a passage like this, especially if we're sick, and some of you are, some of you may have a chronic illness, it's just been around for a long time. You can look at this and say and pray to God, God, make me clean, or God take this pain away, take this chronic illness away that doctors haven't been able to figure out or fix, to come to Jesus broken like that and just to pray. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good initial response or one response anyway that, that we, can, we can have. And to pray for others. I've seen miracles happen. A lot of you guys have. Uh, not very frequently but the unexplainable just happens And as it pertains to healing a lot of times. And, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, this, this Jesus is alive among us. So to acknowledge that and to pray for Pray to him and ask him for things. Totally appropriate. However, uh, this passage, I think, also indicates that physical healings, these ones and others, are not ends in and of themselves either. That's really important to understand here, too, in context right here in Matthew 8, but as we'll see, but also in the rest of the book, these healings are not ends in and of themselves. In other words, we just simply have a greater need than relief from fevers. We just do, Right? Fevers are bad, paralysis worse, L- uh, leprosy also worse. But we st- no matter what our sickness is, we just have a greater need. And the Bible teaches very clearly from every vantage point you can imagine that the relief we need is from sin, from our inner spiritual sickness. And that's the connection we have to make. And un- if we want to really get at the meaning of a passage like this, we can't just look at the tree of Matthew 8, but the forest of Matthew and the greater forest of the Bible we see that the problem, the greatest sickness that all of us possess is inside, inside the heart. Jesus teaches very clearly about this a little bit later. And he's going to in Matthew when he says, What makes you unclean comes from inside you, not from outside. Not sicknesses, that, not lepers that touch you and make you leprous. Or contagions that come from outside of you and touch you and get in your nose, things like that. What really makes you unclean, diseased before God, is Sin what comes from your mind and your heart, bad choices, rebellion against the creator, adultery. He lists a whole bunch of things. He says that's what really makes you unclean. So the need then is, from, is to come from the inside. But it, he's teaching That's what I love about Christ is he's teaching something like that in context with touching lepers and making them clean. So he gives kind of a paradigm here all the way throughout the gospel. All the gospels do this in one way or another. A paradigm for understanding what's going on here. And what the connection we make, what a lot of our, the songs make that we sing, some of the great hymns of history make, is that what he's doing is he's anticipating the cross by healing. He's basically saying, all of you are leprous. I'm healing a physical leper here, but I will do this for you spiritually if you come to me in the same manner and ask me to make you clean. I will do it, and immediately you'll be clean, in the same way that immediately this leper was clean. That's what I'll do. So it's awesome. This is gospel stuff. So we'll come back to that here in, in a few minutes, but that's the initial connection that the Bible makes that, that I want to make for us this morning, especially if you're new to that concept, so that we're, we're following the right trajectory of a passage like this to the cross and not just seeing the physical healings as ends in and of themselves. What I want to do, though, is uh, address this big question because we can still ask after all of that, like, how do we know that, right? I mentioned a couple of things in passing How do we know that right here from Matthew 8, though? Does Matthew 8, 1 to 17, give us any clues into how the physical healings are not the ends in and of themselves and how there's something in mind past it? And I think that it does. Some of these are subtle. Some are a little bit more obvious. But I think what's cool about Matthew 8 in these healings is that we get these clues that there's something beyond the healing. There's something past it that Jesus is, is aiming at. The arrow's going maybe from the bow through Matthew 8, but it's landing on the target of the cross. It's it's implanting right in the bullseye of the cross. But in the meantime, we're we're passing through these apples or t- tissue papers or whatever it is. We're passing through these things and 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 so the, they're they're initial fulfillments, but they're not the they're not the ultimate landing point of the bullseye, like like the cross is. But so the question then is, how do we know that though? What what are what are the clues? Just go through each of these one at a time. So leper centurion. Uh, Woman or Peter's mother in law. First is the leper. So remember in the story, it's a great little story about healing. And after he's healed, Jesus cleanses him. He says, uh, Now go to take yourself to the priests as a testimony or proof to them. So by telling the leper to go to the priests and offer a sacrifice, or it says gift here, Jesus is keeping right in step with Old Testament law. In Leviticus 14, it says, Lepers who believe that they were healed they weren't lepers anymore, were to go to the priests and, uh, and present themselves to them for inspection, essentially offer a sacrifice, and the priests would declare them clean or non lepers in a very formal way so that they could have close proximity to the temple again and close proximity to people. They wanted to live outside the camp. This is Old Testament stuff, but there'd be a lot of that that would be a formal declaration of, of healing and, and cleansing. So, but here's the catch. So, in one sense, Jesus is just saying, "This is what the Old Testament says. I want you to, I want you to do this." But he adds something here as well. A lot of commentators pick up on this, and I think they're right too. He says, "Also, as a proof or testimony to them." So, this is this is an added rationale. This is not in the Old Testament. As a proof to them, or you could translate testimony, to them for for the priest. Uh, this is to say that the priest might see Jesus as the one who made this healing possible. So what he's doing here is really fascinating. It's almost as if he's saying, I'm the ultimate healer of, of the lepers. The Old Testament made it possible for people to be declared clean when they were, and this would have been a pretty rare thing, but if a leper, leprous individual became healed or non-leprous, they were declared clean. The Old Testament had provisions for that, but now I'm the one who is touching people or just declaring, be clean and people are clean. Remember, if, you, if we read all the Old Testament laws and things like in Leviticus 14 as somehow anticipatory of Jesus, and this makes perfect sense. Jesus is saying, basically, keep in step with Leviticus 14, but I'm also here to surplant it and surpass it. I'm the ultimate healer. I'm the ultimate sacrifice. I'm the ultimate way lepers are declared clean. Look what he did. He just declared this leper clean, right? Just like the priests would have done back in the Old Testament. He is kind of fulfilling but kind of sur- surpassing At the same time, this uh, Leviticus 14 provision for for cleansing. It's displaying his power. So what this means is, to put this in a big, uh, to summarize this, Jesus himself is basically the end here. It's not the healing, it's go show yourself to the priests that it might be a testimony or a proof to them that it might display my power. It might be a little early glimmer of uh, what I'm I'm about to do on a higher level on, on the cross which is pretty fascinating. And Jesus does kind of both things. And The first part of this passage says, see say that you say, say, that you say uh, nothing to anyone. And a lot of times he'll do that, and we'll talk more about that later uh, when it comes up in Matthew. You don't have time today to unpack that. But a lot of times he'll keep, people call this the messianic secret. He'll keep his identity and some of the things he's doing secret. Other times he'll, he will display things, do things very publicly. Uh, so many people see him and, and say things like this, like as a testimony or proof to them, go show ourselves to these uh, Jewish priests. So, okay, but again, it's important just to see that Jesus himself is the the ultimate end here and and his power. And we know that he came for more things than just this leper or the book would have ended right here. All right, second thing is a little bit more obvious with the centurion is the mention of judgment. So after the centurion says, just say the word, my servant will be healed, it says in verse 10, When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? I tell you, many will come from east and west. He's talking about non-Jewish people, and recline at table. Uh, well, Jews too, but just more of this global, cosmic thing. Recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, many of the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's talking about judgment. What it's going to be like. Uh, Jew and Gentile in Christ will be saved. Many people, basically what he's saying here in a wider sense, just to make this bigger than the Jew-Gentile divide thing, basically he's saying there are many people who think they're in who won't be. It's one of the, and he's already said this in chapter 7. We're, we're like eight chapters into this book. He's already talking a lot about hell. He, and He's talking a lot about people, religious people. And in our context, we could say Christians even, people who think they're believers but aren't. Sons of the kingdom, people think they're in. But actually on that last day, it will be revealed that they never were. So a little bit of a sidebar. But anyway, the, the uh, important thing in, in here is to notice how the centurion is uh, focusing, or Jesus is in context of talking to the centurion, is focusing on judgment, right? He's talking about, he's talking about judgment. What makes this story so incredible is uh, that he's a Gentile. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but what makes it incredible here is that faith, when Christ talks about faith, faith here relates not just to physical healing, but to dining at the table of God in his kingdom for all eternity. Right? So Jesus just healed someone physically, and in context with that, he's talking about faith that pertains to the very end, where people get to dine with God and be at that great great banqueting table and be in the new earth and be saved forever with other people who live by faith and, and others who won't live by faith. So um, he, he doesn't say, for example, many will come from east and west and continue to believe in me for physical healing. doesn't say that, right? He just goes right to the end. Right to the end and talking about faith for the healing of the soul and for rescuing from hell and to bring one into God's, God's presence forever. So that's where the story is headed. That's the trajectory. It's almost like he's saying there's a little bit of faith here for deliverance from paralysis, but really what's being trusted for is deliverance from sin. Really, what's being trusted for is deliverance from spiritual paralysis. Really, what's being trusted for is Jesus to bring me back to God because I'm so distant from Him right now, as, as this centurion Roman non Jew probably would have been thinking. I'm way on the outside, but I believe somehow this is the guy who will get me closer. This is the guy who will fix that problem. This is the guy who will fix that sickness. And I trust even right now for this smaller issue, just say the word. Don't even come under my roof, just say the word. I'm under authority too. When I say to someone, go, he knows the power of a word with someone in authority. He says, you have greater authority. Just say the word, and that sickness will have to obey you. It's incredible. I mean, talk about a guy worthy of following. You know, it's like, I'll follow that guy. He just speaks. That's why the disciples say elsewhere, when he speaks and the waves get still, even the sea and the wind obey this guy? Who is this guy? Whenever has that happened? Never. It's incredible authority. All right, then last with the mother-in-law, it says, he took our illnesses. He's quoting from Isaiah 53. He took our illnesses and bore, bore our diseases. So after healing Peter's mother-in-law in verse 17, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah about 700, 700 years before that. He took our illnesses, speaking of the Christ who was to come, and bore our diseases. One thing I want you to notice, though, in the way this is worded, the, the wording's careful here. Jesus did not really bear disease here. Right, he took illnesses away, but when he heals this feverish woman, he doesn't become feverish himself. He's not bearing that sickness upon him. Right, he's taken it away. The first clause is a little more literal and accurate. The latter one, though, not so much. He didn't become diseased. In fact, with a leper as well, this was radical. In the Old Testament, if you touched a leper, you were unclean. But Jesus now is the clean one, the perfect one, the sinless one. Is touching a leper, and he becomes clean. So the the contagiousness of his cleanliness is this, this new work of God too as well. But, but going back to the woman, uh, he doesn't take, he didn't become feverish in her place. He just touches her and, she, and the fever leaves her. But what we do know is later in the story that he does bear our sin. That is a little bit different. He does bear our sin and he even becomes sinful on the cross in our place. Second Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So that, that's more of that bearing idea, which we actually don't quite get here. So it's important to, to look at that, and actually back in Isaiah 53, 12 as well, when it says, just in context with the verse that's quoted here in Matthew 8, this is from verse 12, he bore the sins of many, or 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins on the tree, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and uh, live, live to righteousness. The Bible makes a strong connection between these. It's really important to get that. Actually, way back in the Old Testament too, This is something my wife uh, pointed out to me when we were reading this together last week, and I thought this was really helpful. Psalm 103.4 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. And what's important about this is, uh, in the Psalms here, the Hebrews used a particular literary device called parallelism, which means that they would use two clauses like this, so in this case, the yellow things, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, to basically say one and the same thing. It's kind of a poetic thing, right? You say one thing and then you kind of say something else a little bit different, but it means the same thing. So basically here in the psalm, the psalmist is seeing the forgiveness of sins and the healing of physical diseases is basically kind of the same thing. Of course, they're a little bit different, but basically kind of the same thing. So way back in the Old Testament here, and we just learned from Isaiah as well, we, we have this connection. Jesus just picks up on this, and the greater Bible does, Matthew does, uh, to, uh, to help us understand this trajectory the Bible makes. It's always, always, always the cross. Just like in Isaiah 53, again, that arrow goes through Matthew 8, but it lands square on the bullseye of Matthew 26, 27, and 28, which is the passion story, which it gets you a little bit later in the story. That's where all of this is headed. If we don't see that, our hope will be misplaced. If we don't see that, we will not understand the ultimate goal of all the prophecies. Kind of fulfilled here, initially fulfilled here, but not ultimately, not ultimately, and our focus will be misplaced and we'll trust more for physical things than we will for the greater disease, which is our bigger problem. All right, in all of this then, hope it's clear by uh, why this is the case at this point, but all of this is why we can read a passage like this also because none of us has been leprous in the room. few of us have been uh, uh, paralyzed, uh, maybe none, I don't know. Uh, And then also some of us had fevers, but none of us have been literally in this situation. Um, But all of us have spiritually. that's the point. That's why we can look at this and say, this is about Jesus and it's about me. If we didn't have this ultimate second bullseye, we just couldn't say that with the same degree of fervor, right? But if it is about spiritual sin, if it is about the cross, then we can say, it is about me. It's about Jesus first and it's about me lying on that bed too. No matter if we've been healed of sickness or not like this in our lives, it's about me because it's about my sin. It's about me having faith in Christ ultimately for for the forgiveness of of my sins. That's That's what I want to do now is just go back one more time quick and go through these three people and look at this pattern of faith. It's another thing going on here. It's not just anticipating the spiritual healing we'll have on the cross, but you also see, I mentioned this a little bit in connection with the leper a little bit ago, you get a picture of what it looks like to get into the kingdom of God. What it looks like to, to properly come before Jesus and, and get that type of forgiveness. Because we've already seen in the Bible that many people come before Jesus and not have the right attitude, the right perspective on what it means to be righteous. The right perspective on their sin and they'll, and they'll be cast out even though they might kind of look Jesus-y or religious or something like that. But what we're going to see here is a pattern of dependence, a pattern of faith over and against good works. Super important again. a lot of times when you see faith, also see the absence of good deeds, the absence of good works, messiness, and yet cleanliness at the same time, and forgiveness at the same time, and entrance into the kingdom of God at at the same time so So let's first just look at the the leper in in verse two, verses two and three. again, just look at this. It's amazing the grace of God here, and it says in verse two, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand right away and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So I don't want to miss this. I'm going to come back to this too with the centurion, uh, with the woman actually. Um, This is super important uh, to, to not go too quickly over this and not miss the obvious. Notice the grace of God here and just stand in awe of his of his amazing grace. Look at what he says. Just look at what your Savior said. This is what he's like. This is one of the best places to go in the Bible to see the character of God. He says to the leper, I will. I want to. I'm going to touch your, touch your shoulder or just declare that you're clean and you will be. And why it's important to do that, to think in that manner, is because in this same manner, we too can come to Jesus unclean and be healed. If you feel sinful, if you know it, if you're wrestling with something... This is the pattern to follow. This is just what happened to you when you came to Christ the first time. You came before him broken and leprous with pus-filled blisters all over our soul and Jesus made them dry up on the cross. And he declared it. And instantly it, it was the case. So note also, nothing said here of the leper's righteousness, his good works, or even his amount of faith. Rather, he just stumbled through the street sick and he was likely probably ringing a bell just signifying to people, I'm leprous. He shouldn't have been in the city at this point anyway. He was ceremonially unclean. He should have been living outside the city, and he was, but he heard about Christ, came in in kind of an almost a law-breaking, scandalous kind of manner, ringing a bell saying, don't touch me, I'm leprous. Keep your distance on the side of the streets. Fell at Jesus' feet and says, I believe you can heal me, heal me. That was his prayer. Isn't it an incredible prayer? It's full of faith, right? Faith just means dependence and trust and just saying, He's the life raft. He's, he, he's it. He's all I've got. He, and he knew where to go. So it wasn't his amount of faith. It wasn't his righteousness. He was unclean, cast out from the city of God. But he came in and he still found he still found cleansing. It's incredible. In the same manner. In the same manner, you guys. That's what makes it so beautiful. This is what he's like to us as well. I don't care if you've done this a thousand times. Today the invitation is to come like the leper. Come like the leper and be broken and messy and at the expense of or forsaking works and good deeds, just come messy to the cross and, and be saved. This is how we get in. This is what he's like. All right, so that's the leper with the centurion. He just says, just say the word, right? And, and again, I mentioned this before, but what makes the story so incredible is that this guy is a Gentile, so a non-Jew, who believes in Jesus' saving power. And so much so, he knew that just Jesus didn't have to be in the same room. With his sick servant, he could, just, he could just say say the word. Even Jesus is marvel marveling at this guy. It's incredible that Jesus, the Son of God, is marveling at the degree of faith uh, that this guy has and what he says about authority and how much he just trusted Christ. So when Jesus then makes it very clear, this is one of the most important things in the whole passage. So if you like to underline your Bible, I would underline this. Uh, Let it be so as you have believed. Not let it be so as you've been a great guy. Not let it be so as you've gone to church a ton of times. Not let it be so as you've impressed me with how reverent you are or humble you are, kind you are. None of that. Just as you have believed in me, as you've trusted in me, as you've depended on me, let it be so. That's the way in. That's the way to cleansing. That's the way to stand up from our spiritual paralysis. And like this Gentile, to get back to where God is. Because he was a he was a distant, far away from God type guy as, as as a non-Jew in that geographical type way that it was set up around the Old Testament system, but here he's just trusting. I can get back to God. He will make me clean. He will make me close to Him. Ultimately, somehow, having that just that unclarity at this point, but ultimately on the cross, both those things will be will be made possible. Also, note the irony here. Uh, remember that in context, there's a lot of really religious good people who are watching all of this happen. And for Jesus to touch a leper, a Gentile, and a woman is radical. So basically you have all of these religious good men, these teachers, watching Jesus do this. They're not being cleaned. They're not being forgiven. They're not being close to God. They're not being declared as having this great amount of faith. They're watching all this happen from from the outside these broken people these people who are again deemed unclean and separated from god they're watching all of it happen not getting any of that but again this leper this gentile roman centurion and this uh this woman are are being healed incredible so then in regards to the woman uh, peter's mother-in-law again we don't know as much about her but that's the point She's just lying there. It's almost like this climaxes with, in case you didn't get the point and how much it's not about people, look what happens here in the third case. She's just lying there. Just lying sick, maybe even unconscious. And Jesus just walks in, touches her on the hand, and heals her. So again, don't miss the obvious. The point here is no one else, no thing else can help her. She's certainly not saving herself here, Right? Grace and healing are Jesus's to dispense, Jesus's to give, not ours to earn. That's what's being demonstrated. Remember, going back to what we talked about with our subtitle this mini series Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. These are demonstrations of the nature of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. are supposed to pick up on these things in narrative form and say, so, so much as it's true about me as well. I, I'm like this person. That's part of the point. I'm, I'm the leper. I'm the centurion's servant, I'm the mother-in-law, suffering terribly, lying sick in our sins, dying, and Jesus just, arrived, just arrives, literally, to save our lives by grace, and, and immediately so. And also one thing I forgot to mention, too, is I love this, and uh, I think it's verse 15. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and then she rose and and began to serve him. So the order there is crucial as well, Right? She wasn't serving first, and Jesus was impressed by how well she served. And so she said, all right, you've, you've earned the reward of healing. He just healed her by grace. Then she rises up to serve him after that. Super important to get. Actually, in a, in a verse, that's, verse 15 is the difference between Christianity and all other, all other world religions right there. All other world religions do not have a Matthew 8.15 because all other world religions would flip that around and say, The woman was a great servant. The woman impressed Jesus by how kind she was. The woman impressed Jesus by how much she put herself aside and put him him first. And so, so because of that, she was healed. But not here. Not in Christianity. This is complete 180. It's new. It's unique. This is a God thing. This is what God is up to. He's walking into homes and he's touching sick, dead, and dying people who are messy. He's resurrecting them out of the bed and then and only then do they serve him. Then and only then do they serve Christ. Then and only then are they, are they capable of doing that. Not to be saved, because they're already saved. They're already healed. But because they're healed, they can actually serve God and build the church up and worship God and pray. And because they want to, they get to. They're saved in order in order to do it. So again, that's all the point here. There's no also no, there's no go and do likewise command here. The point is not to go and heal the outcasts of society. Never says that. This is not the point. If that's the first thing we get from this passage, we've totally missed the trajectory of this passage. The point is not to go and resemble Christ here. There might be some degree of truth to that, but it's certainly it's a secondary or tertiary thing at best. The, the main point here is we are the beneficiaries. We're not the Christ here. Let Christ be the Christ. We're the ones on the bed. We're the leprous ones at the end of our rope and dead and dying. We're, we're the paralytic. That's us. And Let Jesus be Jesus. And just receive the Christ here and, and rejoice. And then and only then uh, will we at, at best proclaim and testify to this one. And with our lesser abilities and lesser works and acts of service in the church heal. Uh, to, to demonstrate Christ and point people back to him. But first and foremost we just need to notice that. There is no go and do likewise uh, command here. But simply Christ going. And doing these amazing, authoritative, powerful, loving, grace-filled, healing, washing acts of love. Alright, so a couple of things here then to wrap up. Just to review a couple of things here. Um, what do we take away from this then if it's not the go and do likewise? I think, again, first of all, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, this new Moses, this better Moses, uh, he takes sickness away. He takes plagues away. Remember? The law brings plague into our life because we can't do it. It's like a mirror that exposes our dirtiness in our face. It, always, it makes sin worse, actually, the Bible says. It increases trespass, increases sin. So the law brought that. Moses brought that. Jesus brings grace and truth. He actually takes sickness away. It's, it's very different. He takes our sins away as well. And he will eventually bear our spiritual sickness on the cross. This is the essence of the New Testament right here in demonstrative form. It's being demonstrated for us. He's demonstrating the gospel of the kingdom here in healing, by healing, not just healing, but in this manner, healing, responding to faith, not works, doing it completely out of grace, doing it immediately, doing it out of love. All those things are are gospel truths, right? These are all things that are at the core of what it means to be a Christian, being demonstrated in narrative form beautifully right here. That's the first thing. Second thing is be a person of faith like we talked about, not works, come messy to the cross. Uh, salvation, then, this is related. Uh, works are part of the Christian life, of course, but salvation always precedes serving Jesus. In that order, do not twist that around. I mean, I'm guessing that there might be dozens of us here today that have actually—we might not actually believe that if we were asked—but in our minds, we're we're practically living the opposite way of that. Just fun, we're functionally moralistic in the way that we live. We all do that. I mean, all of us are. I'm totally guilty of that. Uh, but one of the things that Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 8.15 offers us as this reminder that, no, we have been resurrected before we're called to serve. And so, have that in mind too. And then last, uh, show your cleansed soul to unbelievers like the leper as a testimony to them. I think this is, if the leper is a picture of us, and he is, uh, then there's also some truth to obeying the call of Christ here as well, to go and present ourselves as proof and testimony to the world around us that Jesus is alive that we are evidence of grace. Share your story, uh, like, the, like the leper certainly did uh, to, to the priests. How could he not, right? Uh, share your story. Tell someone who doesn't know Christ yet about, and they'll probably, if they know you well, if they knew you before you became a Christian, they'll see that difference. Just like they probably knew this guy, or maybe they knew this guy as a leper, and now they're seeing his skin totally clean. On a much, much better scale, Jesus says, go uh, testify to the world that Jesus is alive that his death is sufficient that he died on the cross for all of our sins and immediately so it's not about what we do and just share your story in that as a testimony and, and a proof that Jesus's power is real and that it actually does transform in a way that no other gods under the sun though there aren't any but no other gods under the sun can do uh, the God of the Bible is real he's alive he's full of love and grace for us and those of you guys who are here today that don't that you're hearing that for the first time, you just need to be reminded of that. Let me just invite you, like these three individuals, especially like the leper, just to come to Jesus, fall on your knees. And what makes you a Christian is that prayer. Jesus, I believe you can make me clean from my sins if you will. Please make me clean. And the promise here, the inherent promise is He wants to do that. He loves you. And the channel for that is what he's going to do here chapters later at the end of the book when he dies on the cross and makes that the ultimate fountain, the ultimate river, uh, the ultimate way that we wash ourselves from our sins. Like We're going to sing about again here in just a few minutes. I mean, that, that's the good news of, of, of the gospel that we need to gather around today and for some of us respond to for, for the first time. But for you Christians, this is a call to mission. Uh, who in your life can you demonstrate your life to and show yourself, show your, your redeemed life to in word and deed? Uh, as a proof of uh, the, uh, the truthfulness of the gospel and the power of God that has saved you and has raised you up out of your your, your deathbed like this woman at the, the end of the passage. All right, let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, uh, for your grace. Thank you for the gospel today in this passage. Thank you for reminding us not just that you heal, but the way that you heal. Uh, you heal immediately. You heal because you want to. You will that we be healed. Uh, you do it in a way that is uh, that that is pervasive, that's comprehensive in our life. Uh, the leper was not just kind of made clean, but but totally clean. And all kinds of things we learned today about the nature of the cross, not just that you died for our sins, but this is what's going to happen. And what is, from our vantage point in history, has, has already happened past tense. So we praise you for that. God, take our uncleanliness away right now. I, we pr- I pray it for the whole church right here today, myself. I pray that you would make that the prayer of everybody here this week. They would constantly pray that, constantly come to the cross, not full of themselves, not full of ourselves, but that we become broken and messy, full of sin, only seeing you as the way we we can get out of that. God, we are under a plague without you. If we go to law, we die. If we go to you for grace, we go to the cross, we live. It's just that simple. Um, so, God, I pray that will be where we go this week and forgive us, God, all of our sins, past, present, future. Raise us up, God. pray we would really experience the presence of the Spirit in new life this week as a church like we like we never have, actually, in our history. Uh, we invite that. And just help us to respond to it uh, right now in song out of thankfulness and, and joy. That's really the ultimate thing from a passage like this is just to adore you and thank you for you and for the cross. And so I pray that we'd really... Really feel that uh, today as we respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yes, let's stand and respond.